Twice a week, Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay dissect the biggest topics in Black culture, politics, and sports on their show, Higher Learning. They discuss the most important and timely conversations while also frequently inviting guests on the podcast and occasionally debating each other. Check out Higher Learning on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, and welcome back to Plain English. Today, I want to talk about political identity. The question of today's episode is something like, what is identity? And how is identity contributing to the craziness of American politics today? And I want to start this all off with a confession, which is that I, I honestly think the conversation around identity can get a little bit woo-woo, a little bit philosophical, a little vague, a little bullshitty. And I want to start with something super concrete, a story, a history, a history of how we became polarized around one very specific sliver of our identity, which is where we live. So today in the 2020s, Democrats win in cities, period, and Republicans win in rural areas, period. This is an ironclad rule of politics. In 2020, Joe Biden won all 20 of the largest cities in the country. But 100 years ago, the heart of the Democratic electorate was not in American cities. It was a bunch of rural white Southern dudes and Western farmers. So how did we get from there to here? What is the 100-year history of how the Democratic Party went from being a rural coalition to becoming a strong urban identity? And this is a story in four parts. Part one, call it the New Yorker effect. In 1928, Al Smith won the Democratic nomination for president. Who is Al Smith? You probably haven't heard of him because he lost to Herbert Hoover. But Al Smith was an Irish Catholic New York governor. He had a strong backing from immigrants and left-wing urban workers, and he loses. But four years later, his successor as New York governor runs on a similar left-wing platform, and that guy crushes 
His name is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And so you'll be getting to see the Democratic Party at the national level, a connection between the urban left and Democrats. Part two, the Great Migration. In the first half of the 20th century, millions and millions of black people moved from the rural South to the cities of the North and the Midwest. In 1900, Detroit was 2% black. By the 1960s, it was more than 20% black. That is the Great Migration. And black Americans played a critical role in pushing the Democratic Party left on, especially, civil rights. And so the party of the urban left-wing worker also becomes the party of the urban black voter. But this only takes us to about 1970. So part three is the culture wars. Starting in the 1970s, evangelical Christian leaders become more political and they find a home within the GOP, especially under Ronald Reagan. So the GOP moves right on abortion and issues like that, which appeal to the religious rural based. So what do Democrats do in response? Well, they become the pro-choice party, appealing more to urban cosmopolitan values. Rural moves right, cities move left. Finally, around the 2000s, you have the diploma divide. After the 1980s, factories shut down and the urban economy moves toward finance media, marketing, tech. What do all these jobs have in common? Blue collar urban workers don't do them. Al Smith, poor old Al Smith, his base does not do these jobs. College graduates do them. So Democrats become advocates for the so-called knowledge economy because they're already becoming the party of the city where the knowledge economy is based. Their interests become the interests of the urban educated. And because politics is just a game of dividing the country in half and trying to win 51%, Republicans go in the opposite direction. They become the anti-college party that dominates the less educated and more rural parts of the country. So that's it. Al Smith, Great Migration, Culture Wars College. That is, in something like two and a half minutes, the 100-year history of how Democrats became the party of the city. And that is why the identity of place today plays such a huge role in American politics. So for the rest of the podcast, we have as our guest Atlantic staff writer David Frum. David is a former speechwriter to George W. Bush, a prominent essayist about the dangers of Donald Trump, and I thought we could use his erudite, modern, moderate perspective to help us understand the big identity questions of the moment. Where are we coming apart, and where are we coming together? I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. David, welcome. Uh, you're such a good big picture thinker that I want to start with the very biggest of all possible pictures. I think American politics is in a berserk moment right now. Uh, certain realities, certain fundamental truths do not seem to break through the way they used to. So you look at the economy. People used to judge the president based on the economy. But today you see in polls that people judge the economy based on whoever the president is. Like right now, Democrats say the economy is great. Republicans think things are terrible. 10 months ago, it was the total opposite. Republicans were happy, Democrats were not. What's the difference? Who is sitting in the Oval Office? I thought a pandemic, a shared tragedy like a pandemic would enforce a shared reality. 
But instead, we're still living in two different worlds, maybe more different than ever. Half of middle-aged Republicans say they will not get a vaccine. Just 2% of Americans who are Democrats say the same. That is a 25X reality gap between 45-year-old Republicans and Democrats. What is going on? I think we need to retire that old uh, slogan, it's the economy, stupid, and to realize we have moved from an age in which um, the fundamentals mattered uh, to a new age in which identity matters. Um, I I think we've seen lots and lots of uh, data points on this, that um, the strongest predictor for how you feel about the economy is not the economy. It's not even your personal economy. It's your partisan identification with the party of the president. Um, We have uh, these other strange things that that, uh, are showing up, which is the increasing antagonism of parts of America to each other. I'm sure you saw this Pew survey about how Americans don't want to uh, befriend each other across party lines or date even more strongly, date across party lines. So I think a lot of this is, um, and I'm reluctant to admit this because I've spent a lot of time and energy trying to understand the connections between economics and politics, but I think um, we need to overcome our conservatism, our attachment to the past, and say, we've moved into an era in which um, the economy matters less and less, and so you can't reason with people about this because they see something that's more important to them. One one last thing about this. So... um, there, there. Once upon a time, there was a, a psychologist named um, Abraham Maslow who argued that human needs were stacked in a kind of pyramid, and we moved up this pyramid from uh, basic physiological needs, uh, shelter, um, shelter, food, uh, to psychic needs. And maybe it's not surprising that as the country becomes more prosperous, that our political identities become much more about um, these kinds of h- higher up the hierarchy issues than before. And it's just not going to matter so much that there's a road or there's a bridge. What matters is, does the politician validate who you are, affirm who you are, express your identity? And for half the country, a little more, um, uh, Trump offended that. And for about half the country, Biden offends it. There we are. All right, David. So let's say you have Joe Biden's ear. Um, he, he gives you a call uh, next week and he says, David, I have an assumption that there is a new norm in American politics today, such that the old fundamentals don't matter. It's not the economy stupid, it's your identity stupid. It's group identity stupid. What do I do to navigate those waters? How do I put the Democratic Party in a position to win in 2022 and myself in a position to win in 2024 if I am swimming in a current of group identity politics? The first answer to that is you have to get smarter about what identity means. And Democrats in particular are enthralled to a model of identity that is based on assumptions the census made a long time ago and on the practices of college admissions offices. Um, so the, uh, the one of the great challenges that Democrats have had in the past decade, and we're seeing it now in new surveys, is their assumption that there's, that there's something called Latino or Latinx or Latinx or however they like to put it. There's, there's this thing um, that, that is made up of all of these immigrants from all parts of the Western Hemisphere, and, and I, I think logically Portugal and Spain as well, um, and that they are a block and they are going to, and that they are defined by uh, their sameness to one another. They are voters of color, so they will naturally fall into line behind other democratic groups. And, and this just, I mean, I think every day is bringing this reputation that the, the identities that matter are 
rural versus urban, educated versus uh, less educated, male versus female. Uh, that that one is in, especially with young people, uh, and I think so much of what is going on in our social life and in our politics is driven by. Um, Incre- the increasing tension and friction. And I say this as somebody who wants to have lots and lots of grandchildren, so this is a, a very <laughs> heavy thing on my heart. Um, but the tension between young men and young women, um, their, the, their non-complementarity. Um, and and that, I mean, that that's, by the way, the, if you want to start a um, successful media company, a new one, um, that your target market is men who are angry at women, or women who are angry at men, um, and th- those are the two most exciting parts of the podcast Substack industry, and and that clearly, as we see with the, the latest, uh, uh, I think this is an NPR survey on the enormous gender gap among so-called Latinos, which is what like forty points based on sex. And so like, well, at what point do we say that we're we're, we're looking at this um, the, the, these? Data points are imposing completely the wrong pattern on them, and, and seeing unity where there is where there is not, and missing the unity where there really is, which is um, young men and young women are, are increasingly oppositional to one another, politically, culturally, romantically, sexually. I think a breakdown here would be really useful. I mean, first, I should say you're you're making me totally rethink the posture of this podcast. That um, I, I'm I'm not nearly. Uh, you know, I'm not nearly doing well enough job choosing the side of the gender wars here. I'm being pretty sort of <laughs> <laughs> uh, amenable to all genders was my original strategy, but that might not be antagonistic enough. So a quick breakdown to, to put some stats on, on what you just said. There was a Wall Street Journal poll of Hispanic voters that asked them their opinions of the Democratic Party. Um, in the 2022 generic ballot, Hispanic women were plus 17 for Democrats, Hispanic men were plus 16 for Republicans. So quick mental math, that is a 33-point gap between Hispanic men and women. In 2024, for the presidential election, Hispanic women are Biden plus 25%, and Hispanic men are Trump plus 23%. That is a 48-point gap between men and women among Latinos, among Hispanics. I mean, I really do think that the evolution of the Hispanic vote might be the most interesting development in electoral politics right now. You go back to 2000, Democrats are used to winning the Hispanic vote by somewhere between 18 points, that was their advantage in 2004, to 44 points, their advantage in 2012. But in December, the Wall Street Journal just did this poll of Hispanic voters, and the Democratic advantage among Hispanics was not 40, it wasn't 30 or 20 or 10, it was one. Their advantage among Hispanics has declined from about 30 to one. Again, David, sorry to keep putting such impossible questions to you, but what the hell is going on there? Well, um, the process of Americanization, assimilation, um, the uh, process of of education, which um, has these hugely uh, powerful impacts on those who get it and those who get less of it, Um, uh, gender, gender divides, as I uh, as I, I've said, um, and uh, I, I think the real the real question is why would anyone think it was otherwise? I mean, supposing we were doing politics in the year I don't know 1935, and the, the United States has had a lot of immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe. And you say, why don't we invent a category called you know East South Europe? And say uh, Serbs and Croats, 
Ukrainians and Jews. Um, if we can find an Ashkenazi Jew for our ticket, that'll really help because the Ukrainians, they're all from the same part of the world. They must be, I mean, it's, it, it, what you would say, that's, this is, uh, there are a lot of antagonisms here. There are a lot of cultural differences. Um, now, there is some unity of language uh, in the Hispanic world, some because many of the people who are defined as Hispanic actually um, speak indigenous languages and, and, and um, not Spanish. Um, and uh, there, are other, there are other divisions of class and race. I mean, the assumption behind the Hispanic vote was always the descendants of, of Cortez and the descendants of Montezuma, they had so much in common. <laughs> <laughs> They're bound to be political allies. Um, so I think we just need to, that we created a category in the United States for American reasons um, that began with the Census Bureau, uh, spread to college admissions campus, and we then, uh, departments, and we then reified it and assumed that this is going to be a powerful predictor of how um, uh, people who are bubbling away in the American melting pot. Um, and, you know, at this point, I think it's also true that a lot of the identification as Hispanic is um, volitional. I mean, um, if someone is born to um, a father who traces most of his ancestry to South America and a mother who traces most of her ancestry to Eastern Europe, um, that young person then makes a choice about how do I identify. And, um, and it's quite possible that that family could have many children, who, each of whom have a different choice. And at that point, you say, this category is not making any sense for any purpose. Right. It, right. You're saying it, it doesn't make sense from like an original definition purpose to say that people from Brazil and people from uh, Mexico are, you know, one shared ethnicity with one shared culture, but yeah. it makes less and less sense over time as they assimilate, as first generation yeah. becomes second, third, fourth, and they retain a kind of census identification, a census self-definition of Latino, but maybe in their day-to-day -day life, they don't think about that Latino self-identification as much. They think about other ways of identifying yourself, urban versus rural, left versus right, male versus female, and those other categories of self-definition, you know, yeah. are, are, are more the driver. It, it, it makes me think, you know, and this is a hard question to ask, and it's a question that makes me exquisitely aware of the fact that we're two dudes talking about this. So I want to phrase the question delicately. But why do Democrats have the guy problem? Why is it Democrats who are losing men year after year, generation after generation, not just among white voters, but now as we're seeing among Latino voters, Hispanic voters as well, mm -hmm. what is wrong with the way that Democrats are talking to men? Well, let, let's um, also let's note that there's an equal and opposite Republican female problem. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, and so, um, so I don't I don't know that we need to pathologize one party more than another. Um, and and just as a clinical point of view, I mean, yes, I, I understand because it's very important that Donald Trump not be president again. So you worry about why are the Democrats underperforming? Um, but you have but correctly I mean, diagnosed the origin of the question. Yes, but from a from a clinical point of view, you need to say why are men and women voting equal, uh, increasingly differently from one another, and why are they grouping in these two ways? And um, and and so once you put it that way, you can sort of it, it becomes a less difficult question to answer. Um, but what, what you can see is. Um, the, there are a series. Uh, there, there are just the Republicans identify with and champion a, a series of issues that make men feel validated and powerful. Um, why has the gun issue become so important? Um, 
you know, and uh, what, 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 what do guns mean? And, uh, and guns are very much, uh, I'm, although there has been an uptick in 20 and 21 of women buying guns, it remains an exclusively male, uh, not an exclusively, a, a disproportionately male preoccupation. It certainly is a voting issue. Men care about it much more than women. We can see that. Well, the gun puts power in your hand. And you can see uh, the power of life and death, the ultimate power. And you can see why people who feel that in so many other areas of their lives, um, power is ebbing away from them. You pick up this tool and you feel powerful and you put it in your, you tuck it into your pants and you walk around and for, and for a moment you are God. I mean, you, you dispense death at will. And even though you might be constrained enough by law that you don't do it unless somebody really cuts you off in traffic, um, uh, you know, you, you know you have this power, and it's tremendously, for those who want it, tremendously gratifying. Um, as the sexes become less complementary uh, in the economy, in sexual life, in romantic life, that, yeah, the, the, there's a party that channels male grievance, and there's a party that is more hospitable to female aspiration. Um, and it's not perfect because, look, uh, as m- my daughters and their friends will point out, that there are quadrants of the progressive left that offer a lot of play space for dickish behavior. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. I want to stitch together a couple ideas that we're talking about, because I can imagine a listener saying, oh, well, we're talking about polarization by education, by gender, by place. How are they all connected? Here's a statistic. This year, it was reported that women now account for 60% 
of college enrollees. College now is 60-40 women over men. How is that relevant? Well, as women become more educated and the Democratic Party becomes more dominated by college graduates, it's naturally going to lean more toward women who account for the clear majority of college graduates. And then, one more degree, where do college graduates, especially young college graduates, move? They move to cities where Democrats also dominate. So this is the underground river connecting all of these trends. This is in part how the Democratic Party has become the party of women, of college graduates, and of cities all at the same time. I wonder what you make of that. Yeah. Um, well, you, you're, uh, and, and when you look at sort of counties, the, the, the counties that because um, prosperous counties, the knowledge counties, I mean, they, I think Hillary Clinton won uh, the counties that produce 66% of the GDP of the United States, and Biden won counties that produce 70% of the GDP of the United States. Um, and increasingly, the model of red states versus blue states is, is obsolete, um, that uh, Every, every state virtually reproduces this. So the big ones in Texas and Georgia, I mean, that the, the um, Houston, Houston is Democrat, de uh, Democratic, Dallas is Democratic, Austin, you know, famously so, uh, San Antonio. Um, and, and we're getting to the point where um, Fort Worth now is a Democratic city. So the, the, the battle is now for Amarillo and Tyler in Texas. And, and Georgia has a similar kind of story. And Georgia is going to be very important that way in 2022. Um, so, uh, so far, Black Americans have been more resistant to this trend than other groups. And there are powerful historical reasons why that would be so. And maybe it will continue. But maybe the undertow is so strong that at least, I mean, not, I, I don't imagine that, um, Black Americans become as competitive as as Hispanic Americans are, but you may see some of this trend happening, especially um, if you know under a post Donald Trump leadership. Um, and uh, of course, this has implications not just for what happens in cam campuses, but what happens for lifetime incomes. I mean, because uh, there's historically, and this may change, but historically, it is that women have greatly valued uh, partners who make at least as much money as they do, and often express a preference, and there's a social science on this, for partners make even more money than they do. Well, if women are getting 60% of the BAs, um, and uh, that's, uh, that, that, that hope is going to bump into some realities, that more and more women are going to be making more money than more and more men. Um, and that will mean either they have to change their ideas about what they're looking for in a partner, um, or they are going to be unpartnered. And and on the male side, you're going to have more and more men who feel like um, bringing home the bacon entitled them to certain things inside the house, and now they don't. But they still have they still have their expectations of what they're entitled to inside the house, and that's where I think a lot of the friction between uh, the sexes comes from, with the, all of its political uh, po political effects. Let me jump in here and share a, a theory that I've heard about why women overall lean toward Democrats while men lean toward Republicans. Uh, this theory comes from Elizabeth Cassio at Dartmouth College. Um, and it's a story that begins in 1980. So 1980, you have the nomination of Ronald Reagan for president. The GOP drops its support of the Equal Rights Amendment that would have guaranteed legal gender equality for women and men. They start to speak out against abortion and they embrace the Christian right which at the time made a really big deal about the problem of working women for quote unquote traditional families. So November, 1980, Reagan wins easily, but he loses women by eight points. It, the first ever mention of a gender gap 
appears in the Washington Post three months later in 1981, the year Reagan becomes president. So what happens now, starting in 1981? You have a sorting effect. There's some evidence that male voters in the U.S. had for decades been more conservative than women on welfare, homosexuality, use of force, foreign policy. But as the parties became more ideological, men and women started to sort themselves by their ideological differences. The Democratic Party became more reliant on women, on excuse me, on, on, on winning women's votes. And so their policies became really attuned to women's issues. Uh, women are more likely to live below the poverty threshold, more likely to rely on food stamps, more likely to be employed in education and healthcare. And lo and behold, what party talks more about poverty? What party talks more about food stamps? What party talks more about expanding education and healthcare? It's Democrats. And so you see this gender gap growing. Eight percentage points in 1980, 12 points in 2000, 13 points in 2016. And I find this stuff just absolutely fascinating. And I think you can sum it all up with the question, you know, where is America becoming more polarized and where are we becoming less polarized? So you look at gender, we're clearly becoming very polarized there. But now look at something like race. And I think this is gonna surprise some people. Race is becoming a little bit less polarized. Hispanic voters, as you said, they're moving toward 50-50. Black voters still overwhelmingly democratic, but moving a tiny bit toward parity. Um, where polarization is really rising is gender, geography, and education. Urban counties, basically all Democratic-leaning. Rural America, veering sharply to the right. Then you look at education. College grads have swung left. Non-college has swung right. And then there are the vaccines. And this is where I finally want to offer it to you, David. There's this irony that I can't get over, which is that vaccine production was accelerated by Donald Trump, and he takes credit for it, maybe even too much credit. But half of middle-aged Republicans say they refuse to be vaccinated. How did polarization, which has existed in gender, has existed in race, has existed in geography, how did it come for the vaccines? Well, th this is a rich topic. And let me just say to the way you've prefaced the question. Um, there was a period when it looked like a way to sell the vaccines to the resistant part of the population was to give Trump a lot of the credit for for it. And so as a matter of salesmanship, um, I'm willing to go uh, yield, but it turns out it didn't work. And so now we can just talk about what is true. Um, <laughs> and and uh, it, it's, you know, it happened on his watch. Um, so uh, that's good, but it's, it's, at every point of the way, Trump's priority was to deny the reality um, of COVID. Um, and he regarded it as an, an impertinent piece of, you know, an impertinent little miniature Washington Post delivering fake news that made him look bad. And his reaction to that was just to deny its existence. And so um, the administration, um, it was, it's true that they uh, um, removed some barriers that would have otherwise slowed the development by private sector people. But uh, let's remember the most important work on this vaccine was done in Germany, uh, not in the United States. And D Donald Trump, so you could as well call it the Merkel vaccine if you're going to call it anything. Uh, right. Call it anything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, uh, and that wouldn't be true either. Um, what is the connection? So there's a, there's a popular level and there's an elite level. At, at the popular level, the 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 number of Republicans who refuse it, there's just a kind of, they figured out that 
Trump, they, they got the double, the true message of Trump's two double messages. Yay, vaccines. No, this this uh, this uh, pandemic is a fake and an insult um, and not my fault. And any acknowledgement of it undercuts me. They got the message he was more serious about. And so there's just a kind of truculence, which is I am not going to surrender uh, to this reality or the, this purported reality. I am going to stay here and say, Trump was right. The the whole thing is overblown. The whole thing is an insult. It's it's in my way. And and the right thing is just you know either to believe the conspiracy theories that it doesn't exist at all, or believe the conspiracy theories that it was invented by Bill Gates and Dr. Fauci. But just truculent, dogged. No, I I won't go along with this. I'm not going to do it. And if I get sick. I get sick, you know. It's also true that fried foods aren't good for you and that having a gun in the house isn't good for you. Do I listen to the experts about those things? No, I don't. I'm not going to start now. So I think you're absolutely right that a lot of vaccine denialism is downstream of COVID denialism. I think if you, if you don't think this pandemic is a big deal, then yeah, you're going to be offended by the suggestion that you have to get a shot in your arm to make it go away. You are going to be even more offended by the suggestion that you'll be mandated by the state government to sit in a chair and let some person stab you in the deltoid. Like, look, this isn't my philosophy, but like, I recognize it as internally coherent. I think it's coherently wrong, but 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 I, I get the philosophy. But I also think this anti-vax philosophy, and again, tying us back to identity and education and why I wanted to talk to you in the first place, how identity seems to shape everything that's happening right now. There's something at work here about putting the scientific elite in their place. Like, about getting to say, screw you to Fauci, you're wrong. Screw you to the CDC, you're wrong. Screw you to the New York Times and all you, you know, neurotic liberals with your masks and your marching orders and your rules, you're all wrong. You were all wrong about this thing spreading on surfaces and wrong about the vaccines being perfect protection against transmission. And what I see here, which I think is, is very interesting, is a political movement on the right that is devoted to skewering the, edu the educated elite. But they're so devoted to this project that they miss the big question. They miss the big issue. The vaccines save lives. The vaccines block severe illness. They make you less likely to die. And I, I guess I just wonder, what, what do you make of this? The way that education polarization, which might be one of the most important stories in politics today, has merged with this instinct to deny the pandemic and the therapeutics that could end it. To paraphrase another saying, the only thing that can stop a bad expert with a wrong fact is a good expert with a better fact. Um, so when you say uh, that at first scientists hypothesized that the disease could be spread on surfaces, and later they were refuted by the weight of scientific... It, it, um, the, the whole, I mean, the, the very act of saying they were they were wrong and they were exposed. It's 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 a, it's a child's view of how science proceeds. It's an argumentative. It's a smart Alex view because what actually happens is a new problem comes along, um, and there is a lot of noise and static. And people of good faith and relevant expertise, try, um, working urgently. But this is not something that you can wait for the answer. Offer early approximations of what they know. And then as evidence accumulates, and as they are challenged by other people with comparable expertise, they discover that some of their early presuppositions are mistaken. Um, and uh, let's bracket here, because this is the one you hear about most. The political people who said um, uh, it's, it's bad to gather 
if you're gathering for reasons we uh, for fun, but good to gather if it's Black Lives Matter. So somebody gave that quote to some public health person. Okay, so that that kind of behavior is. Um, obviously wrong and obviously discrediting. But most of the time what was going on was uh, in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, people who, who, who were scientifically minded, who were asked for real-time advice, said, this is the best we know now. They weren't wrong. They were just early, um, and uh, and we want and we weren't going to. What if we didn't say to them, I'll tell you what, you here's this new thing. Why don't we all die uh, for the next six months? Um, and you go into a room, and we will wait patiently, uh, dying all the while, until you come up with a really bulletproof answer to what the problem is. That's not what we asked. We said we want what you know now. Tell us what you know now, and we'll take the risk that it's going to turn out to be partially correct or partially or, or maybe entirely wrong. Um, but tell us what you know now. And and they did. And and at every stage, and some of those things did turn out to be premature, not wrong, but um, mistaken or. Um, or overturned by by later evidence, um, and I think one of the things that that um, the people on the internet who make these arguments they're blind to the difference between um, good faith uh, errors based on acting fast on inadequate information and bad faith deception. The the difference between uh, the people who said we don't th- we don't think right now masks are going to be helpful, and the people who promoted hydroxychloroquine was uh, the people who said, we don't think at this point of the epidemic masks are going to be helpful, uh, were acting on the basis of really, uh, for the, the only thing they were concerned about was how do you stop the disease? And they were giving you their best reading of the information they had. It. The people who said the answer is hydroxychloroquine were motivated by the desire to protect President Trump from his inhumane disregard of human life and to come up with some excuse for him. And then they ransacked they were acting not. They were acting like lawyers. I mean, that when we, I, I was trained as a lawyer. So, uh, as a lawyer, you don't care whether your client is actually guilty or actually innocent. Uh, the the guiltier the client, the greater the glory if you can win the client an acquittal. Um, and you say what you think will tend to support your preferred outcome, and you know the preferred outcome, and you're paid for it uh, from the start. You're not interested in in the pursuit of truth, and we need to separate those those categories of, of behavior. And so, yeah. Um, I mean, there's, as the scientists say when, about error, that a mistake is not a mistake. A mistake is a success in, proving the, in disproving a, a mistaken hypothesis about the problem. That's also how, how, the, how the process of human knowledge advances. Well, and this, if I had to summarize what you just said in one sentence, it would be science is hard. <laughs> and maybe that's not the deepest observation, but... I don't know. An observation doesn't have to be deep to be true. Scientific thinking, actually putting evidence over ideology is really friggin' hard. It's so hard that it makes us desperate for shortcuts, for cheat codes. And bias is a cheat code. Identity is often a cheat code. Having an enemy, having a political enemy that you can just bounce off of, that is a cheat code. These are all excuses to let go of our brains and choose the opposite of thinking. And I think that is what I see running rampant in American politics today. It's not, it's not just craziness. It is the opposite of thinking. So uh, on that study note, David, thank you for helping me think through some of these issues. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Plain English with Derek Thompson is produced by Devin Manzi. We are off for the next week. The next episode will be in the new year. We will see you in 2022. Happy holidays. Please be safe. And we'll talk to you soon. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC slim fit trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just... Once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com.